Inside Man, Stephen Moffat's 2022 thriller, mystery, drama type show with David Tennant has concluded with its third and fourth and final episodes here. We're going to jump right into discussing them with full spoilers for the show's four episodes. We being myself, Neo from Australia, along with my friends from England, Ingiga and Tyler. Now, us three, in our first discussion about the show, covering the first two episodes, uh, what sort of stuff were we touching on? What were our main ideas we were talking about there? Um, well, we were questioning, like, to what extent Harry is necessarily an everyman, or whether he's particularly special in how he views himself, and also we brought up some stuff about how open-ended we thought the show might be, on, or who was going to kill who, we were wondering about Mary on that front. <laughs> I remember that we were also covering this big theme of, like, how lies can be like an active hubris of trying to like author reality trying to set yourself as the author uh making up a better version of events that's you know meant to hold tighter than what actually happened it's like a power thing you know so said Moffat about the main theme of the show anyway we were talking kind of about the nature of the show not as a totally straightforward drama mystery type thing but kind of as a farce as well and we <laughs> Tyler, you in particular, you were saying something me and Gig were a bit sceptical of when you were talking about the potential for the show to continue. And I think we were <laughs> yeah. uh, a bit hesitant on that. I feel vindicated in this. We can only eat crow. He's actively, you know, talking about maybe he could do more. The show totally ended the way you were suggesting. So, yeah, you were right. I was wrong. Very good call there. And Gig and I were wrong thinking, thinking that Mary would end up... The killer. We were so confident about that, weren't we, Gig? Yes, we were. Well, I, to, to be fair, we, we all did agree on that. So I, I, I was also confident. So we were all wrong about that. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes, we had a, such such expectations and faith. Although, I mean, this would this would have been a better ending. I, I strongly I strongly feel that the Mary killing would have would have been a stronger ending. But I'm sure. I don't know. I'll, I'll get a chance to voice that opinion later. We'll talk a lot about Mary. I, I, I think quite a number of things might have been a better ending you know i think that's, <laughs> yeah. it's hardly the only thing you're both starting to get a bit critical about these last two episodes so i want to frame that with something that unites all three of us is we're very interested in stephen moffat's career i all three of us have individually seen most of his work i would say uh i've seen all press gang we've all seen joking apart i've seen chalk I think, Tyler, you've seen Coupling as well as me, I think. You've seen some of it, maybe. I think I've seen season one of Coupling. Season one, yep. We've all seen Jekyll. We've all seen his Doctor Who. You two have seen his Sherlock. We've all seen his Dracula. Gig and I saw The Time Traveller's Wife. Tyler's got a ticket for his play. We've read his Doctor Who novel. We're very, very familiar with his work. Um, we clearly generally like his writing a whole lot, don't we, since we're engaging with it so much. So... I want to preface any thoughts we have on these last two episodes by being like, generally, we're big fans of how he writes, aren't we? Um, were you a big fans of how he pulled off this show's ending? Um, not long ago, I found myself arguing to someone that Moffat was uh, sort of semi-good at endings, and I'm going to have to take that back now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Yeah, I'm rethinking that part. I've always defended Stephen Moffat really staunchly, always. In, all, in, in everything, in every sense, even to you, I think, uh, uh, New York. You have, yeah. There have been times where, <laughs> where, you know, we'll talk about the wedding of River Song and I'll sort of say, yeah, I agree, it's a bit crap, but there's, there's, there's this and that. You know, there's, mm -hmm. I, I've, there, there is, there's rarely, there, there's, there's nary a moment in Stephen Moffat 
um, in the, the history of Stephen Moffat's career that I can look back on and say I didn't like, that I didn't think was good, sure, but that I didn't like, I don't can hardly really come up with, with them. There are a couple, maybe there's a bit in Joking Apart that I don't like, and there's a couple of bits in Jekyll that I don't like, but generally speaking, I even at, even at times when I don't think um, something pans out in the way it ought to, or or even things are just not good, I think that there's there's a charm to Stephen Moffat that I that I enjoy, and that's why you know I, I continuously go back to to his stuff. I, I find I find it charming, I find it endearing. We were t- we were talking in the last episode about how we liked see Moffatisms and like the, the the quirks of Moffat's writing, and those are always the things that I find and I find balance out. The, the bad and um i really struggled with this i really really struggled with it because even the moffatisms either made me angry or maybe cringe and i realized that for the first time do you remember <laughs> way back in the day way back in the doctor Who series six series seven days all the judgments of stephen moffat as, as being convoluted being hack being um, you know and, and being uh, impossible to understand impossible to follow or his jokes aren't landing now I I I get it. I understand. <laughs> I am in that position. I have I've I've fully understood that. Oh God, this is just absolutely ridiculous. And so none of the humour is working, and nothing is working. And it's so wrapped up in his own head, and so far up Stephen Moffat's own ass that I I just it's impossible for me. Not impossible to follow. Impossible to accept. I can't accept it. I'm very sad about it actually. <laughs> Well, I think I like these last two episodes definitely more than you, Tyler. But I also came away with this similar kind of feeling of, oh, I understand a lot of complaints which I used to not understand or I used to think were sort of ill-founded. Like, often you see people complain, like you talked about people saying Moffat's too convoluted. And I think there's something kind of similar to that when people are like, Moffat's too patronising or he's setting his shows up in a way where there's like there's developments that you're not really privy to that he's kind of holding over. People seem to have like this. Sometimes people feel like like Moffat's flouting his intellect, or he's like trying to make you feel inferior to his intellect. And I've always thought that's mostly nonsensical, or it's being done like specifically as a type of joke and not like an actual weird misjudgment of uh, how this is going to play to an audience. But and I'm hoping someone can explain this stuff to me better so I could appreciate it more. But a lot of the Jefferson grief stuff here, I kind of understand what people say. I'm not saying I agree with their criticisms for other shows, but I kind of get the feeling of like this character is like condescending to a character and by proxy, I think to us, the audience of, oh, you don't understand so-and-so. Well, keep thinking about it, but we're not given any of the tools to understand it. And then this smart character just keeps like taunting us that we don't understand it over and over. And Lydia West's character just keeps going like, what, 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 and not understanding. And this happened in multiple episodes of the show. And I'm just confused why Moffat wrote that. Like, I don't really understand. Is it meant, like, I get that it's sort of meant to be irritating, like in a playful way. But if you keep doing it, is it actually meant to irritate us? Like, and what, is there meant to be a payoff? Is there not meant to be a payoff? I was confused by some of that stuff. Can you think of like examples of 
Jefferson grief patronizing stuff that were a bit weird to you guys too, maybe? I mean, well, it was practically the whole show. I mean, he was doing it in almost every episode. I mean, <laughs> that the whole bizarre sequence in episode three where, I mean, really quite a pointless sequence, where Beth gets that additional morality test from Morag and turns out grief was listening in on the phone the whole time. And it's like, what? why are we doing this? <laughs> you, you, already, you already judged Beth to, to despise you in the first episode. Why are we doing this all over again? I think Moffat is indulging one of his worst instincts with grief with this character in that he seems to just be really reveling in just being able to write a character who is smarter than everyone and superior to everyone and omniscient and at complete peace with everything and not particularly emotionally invested in anything and who just gets to to, to get the last word on everything and it's like oh my god you know when he has written this kind of character before that has been with a view to interrogating that character and their hubris, their ego, their, their, their selfishness, their toxicness, the, the way in which they hurt people around them. And that's often been really compelling, really interesting. He does it all the time. For some reason, with grief, in this case, he just didn't do that second bit. Yeah. He's just been one-notely portraying this character who just never actually gets to show another side. We never get anyone else's take on him. We never get to... We never get to expose any flaws in how he sees himself. He just gets to be basically practically the narrator of the whole show, who is just lauded above everyone for the whole thing. Because, gosh, isn't he fascinating? Isn't he great? And the result is just it's quite boring. This is where also I have to eat some crow to Tyler's victory here, is that in our first discussion, Tyler, you were saying you weren't really connecting with Stanley Tucci's performance because you were finding it very, like, understated or, like, held back. Uh, and I thought, well, it's, I thought it's Stanley Tucci. Like he's doing that because it's, he's going to take the performance somewhere. Like this is going somewhere. This is, you know, one level of the performance. And then at the end, he's going to go into another place. It's going to be a whole dynamic arc thing, but nope. They kept the same energy basically through the four episodes. And that was like, you've got a really good actor here. An actor, people tune into the show just to watch this actor because he's that well liked and he's that good of an actor that people like him that much. And so, yeah, it's cool that he's in here, but he, I'm not saying it's a fault of his. I think you could say it's a fault of the script for giving him material, which he seems to find like one energy to play. Mm. I don't know. I'm not sure that I agree with that. I do think that there is a, a degree to which um, the the writing uh, was a problem here, because obviously the, what, what you want with Tucci is the big payoff of this of what was what was the issue with his wife why did he kill his wife what's going on there that you don't get any of that <laughs> not, not not a single not, not nothing nothing whatsoever um and, and that should have been tucci's big moment shouldn't it but i do also think that there was plenty for tucci to chew over i really do and i think and i plan to um i'm, I'm hoping that these scripts are, are released uh because i would like to read them um i it's curious because I agree that Stanley Tucci is a good actor. I've seen him in stuff that I've really enjoyed before. And I, th- I think that he is capable of reading a script, interpreting it and performing it in, in a way that is really enjoyable. But I don't think we really got that here. It, it was really weirdly one note. And I think it was a choice. I think it was a stylistic choice that he made, a decision that he made to be sort of deadpan. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was the fact he was working in British TV. I don't know. I don't know what inspired him to, to make that choice, but even in, in the um, in the moment of uh, discovering his execution date uh, and all the stuff mulling over that, there was nothing there. And I do think that there was stuff in the script to play with. I do think that that um, I can't for all of the faults that I can blame Moffat for 
in this uh, in this show, I don't think that Stanley Tucci was given bad scripts. Except, well, I don't think he was given bad dialogue. Um, yeah, he performed it in in that way. So I, I don't know. I disagree that it's scripts. I, I think it's Tucci. I don't think it helped, though, that the one point in the story where uh, um, Jefferson seems to actually be invested in something, be trying to get something, you know, be trying to, you know, earn a reprieve from his execution and do something like that, where it seems like he's actually invested in something. It turns out he was just pretending the whole time. And he actually wasn't bargaining for more uh, for a stay of his execution at all, because he actually wasn't bothered <laughs> at all. Yeah, I, I, I think that 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 lack of actual movement in his character, uh, like underlying, I think, I, I think that sort of lends itself to, to the problem here, if you see what I mean. I think, you know, with Dracula, we had those comments where Gatiss was like, well, we could do a series two, you know, because Dracula dies, but do vampires really die? And Dracula, it's a perfectly self-contained three, ep- you could argue it's a, per- you could say the first episode itself is a nice little Dracula movie, but it's a perfectly contained little miniseries. You don't need a series two for, although you could potentially do one. Uh, the time traveler's wife got cancelled, but it's, it's said so much of what Moffat could say with that story and it ended in a way that was very summative and does kind of work as a full-on ending, even though he would have liked to do more. But Inside Man, like, <sighs> Moffat said to Radio Times, he said, the story will end in four episodes. It's done by the end of that. As to whether or not you could ever spin off anything or do any kind of sequel, I don't know at this moment. It's not really up to me and it's not up to the broadcasters. It's up to the audience, really, isn't it? And if anyone wanted it, you have to sit down and think, is there anything to do? Television is littered with shows that had one season and pretended they could carry on. I would never want to be one of those where you're so excited to get a phone call about doing another run that you do it and then realize, actually, the story is finished. But, like, in in another interview, an interviewer asks, on the subject of suffering at the hands of another, why did grief kill his wife? And Moffat says, ha, 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 ha. Well, I know that. No one else does. The interviewer says, give us a little hint, go on. Moffat says, no. Well, the only thing I'd ever say is he's very clever, isn't he? And then he goes on about how clever Jefferson is because he's so impressed by that, naturally. (laughs) So it's like the show is like, I know Moffat's like saying, well, I'm not, you know, it's meant to stand alone. And, you know, if we do another series, it's just because people love it so much. But it didn't feel like that to me. It felt like it was ending on a sequel hook. I mean, you could say the last moment with with um, with Dolly Wells's character is like kind of paying off. You know, when she's like assuming Tennant's role in his study and kind of taking over him with Ben. You could like say, well, she's kind of taking over the role of like the ooh the morally grey figure that's going to get involved with the killing or something. But it it thematically didn't feel like a big punctuation mark to end the show. It felt more like it wouldn't this be interesting to see in another series, along with why Jefferson killed his wife and seeing more with Lydia West being trained up and whatever. Did you guys get this feeling that it felt kind of unfinished or at least that it was begging for more? Well, there's a difference, isn't there, between ending a show with a hook, which is the Dolly Wells, Stanley Tucci moment, and not finishing the story and and kind of forcing (laughs) the BBC to give you, in a very sort of Alan Partridge way, forcing the BBC to give you a season two so that you can finish the story. It's like, I think if, if there was more to Jefferson, I wouldn't feel unfinished for never getting the full story with his wife, but there wasn't more to him. So, 
it feels incomplete. Yeah, I, th- I think the the trouble with the whole wife thing is that <laughs> as, you know, as, Moffat, as much as Moffat is suggesting there that it's some terribly fascinating enigma, you know, it's actually not because we know nothing about Jefferson, his wife, his relationship with his wife, why it would be so mysterious and clever and intriguing for him to kill her and cut off her head. It's just a giant void. So there's just no. There's not enough context for us to have a genuine interest in what that story is, because we don't even have the faintest frame of reference for why we might even ask the question. So it, it does feel unfinished in that way, just sort of having that, like, setting up a whole thing of, ooh, there's an interesting mystery here, and then just going, oh, you know, or maybe I'll, I'll, I'll keep my secrets to myself, I'll tell you later another day, when it's just like, I don't care, it's not interesting. <laughs> you haven't done the part, you haven't done the work to make it interesting. This, this might interest you both. So, it's on the topic of how much did Moffat plan out the show, like before he started writing all of it. So, he had some stuff planned in his head and he had some stuff, you know, that could go one way or the other and he had some stuff he just improvised as he wrote the scripts. And one of the things that he had locked in from the very beginning of the show was the trick that impressed Gig so much about Jefferson, the, the trick of- um, what he was actually doing in the finale. Okay, so I, I of course, uh, I didn't tell you no. uh, what the outcome would be. And I only I only knew a couple of things about the outcome. I knew what Jefferson's trick would be. He also knew from the outset that Janice would live, but he knew he wanted a main character to die in the finale. Uh, and I knew someone was going to die, but I, I, I knew trick, it was not going to be Janice. <laughs> uh, I always knew Janice was not going to die. But someone was. He was going back and forth as he was doing the scripts on which main character he wanted to die. He was toying with uh, Beth Davenport for a long time before deciding uh, it should be Mary instead. I didn't precisely. I knew someone was going to die. I didn't know who it was going to be. Uh, and I had this idea. I kept having different ideas who was going to die and what was going to happen. One version of it was uh, I, I, I wondered, we just kill Beth randomly. You know, she doesn't, she, you know, she just arrives and, uh, and she, you know, and uh, gets run over, you know, yeah. <laughs> something just horrible. I thought, no, that's not, that's not right. Yeah. Um, but I thought, well, no, it's, it's Mary. Yeah. I just thought. I think it's right. It's right. Uh, and that's, because uh, I knew somebody has to die mm. and I was going to do it. <sighs> but why no murder? His big interest in killing Mary was <laughs> that he, that he thinks in, I'll, I'll talk about this more because it's, it seems to be the other big theme of the show for Moffat is like, people don't normally do this on TV. So I wanted to, or in real life, people do this and they don't do this on TV. So I wanted to do this in TV. He was talking about how you don't see characters like look both ways across the street much in TV. And so he thought it'd be cool to, you know, <laughs> he, he actually said Mary's one of the all time great deaths um, because, it's, you know, she's not looking both ways. <laughs> You're joking. And then at what, and one of my bugbears watching television, it nearly happens in Inside Man itself, and I remember just saying, no, no, look before you cross the road. It's one of my things uh, when, we, when you watch TV show. People just walk across roads. They do in real life, too. Uh, yes, they do in real life, but you can't often die, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, but really in television, it's outrageous. People just constantly drifting into the road and think, no, you die. You know, I mean, you're not going to live very long. So I thought, well, let's just do it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm Mary, in the midst of a, a perfectly reasonable time, desperate to go to the loo, uh, desperate to get away from Beth, desperate because her son's in the cellar, walks backwards in the road and just gets killed instantly. After surviving that whole really funny knife situation. Yeah, the, uh, and again, I uh, it's uh, the, the sort of ludicrous 
inability to have a proper fight. <laughs> and when she goes going whoosh, whoosh with the <laughs> knife. And then there's the, the scene when they run down the stairs. Uh, and and that's quite shocking. This is a hilarious bit, which is the very last thing that Lindsay did on the show, was where she rushes down. She says, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> and then rushes out the door uh, into that. I, and I think it's one of the all-time great deaths. He, he thought it would be a cool thing, how TV doesn't normally have characters looking both ways. So that was one of the reasons he chose Mary to die instead of Beth or another main character. That's fucking insane. I'm sorry. There's just no nice way of putting that. That's just fucking insane. This is ridiculous. I can't, I'm just, I literally am shocked. I'm flabbergasted that there is a, that this is a, a show about murder and a show that is is philosophizing about murder and, and how one commits murder and uh, grief's philosophy that um, anyone, can, any, everybody's a murderer. It just takes a bad day. And yet there's no murder. <laughs> and, uh, and you know we, we get and we get and we get told that that the murder is that Mary died, but Mary died in an accident. And I understand. I don't. I'm not stupid. I do understand that that it was through the fault of Harry, through Harry's actions, that, that you know the consequence was that Mary accidentally died. But she did accidentally die. He didn't murder her. Same as Edgar. And he, in fact, Edgar was a, was a more direct consequence of Harry's actions. Mm. But it still wasn't murder. It was, still was an accident or, or was a suicide. It wasn't murder. There was nothing. There was no murder. In this story, Harry didn't murder anybody. Ben didn't murder anybody. There was a suicide and an accidental death. Moffat was asked, how culpable is Harry for Mary's rather graphic death? And Moffat said, I mean, quite a lot. He doesn't literally murder her. He's not even really guilty of manslaughter, is he? But if they just said, look, the only thing we can do is terrible, but it is the only thing. It's own up, fess up to the truth and hope. Place your faith in justice and know that it probably won't work, you know. It would certainly derail horrifically all their lives. But as I say, it does anyway. It does anyway. And Mary's dead under a van. It's not a great choice. I would understand it a lot more if we were if we were meant to disagree with Grief's philosophy by the end of the show. But it, it, Grief, is still, Grief still believes his philosophy and he still gets to philosophise about it again at the end in, in that scene with David Tennant. So I, I, but I don't agree. I, I didn't agree with him in the first place, but I was hoping that maybe Moffat would show me why he believes it or why Stanley Tucci believes it, or even show me why Tucci is wrong. But we just, there's just, just so much nothing in this show. Yeah, I, I think the biggest problem with Mary's death, besides it being just a, just a more moment of jaw dropping cynicism and banality, I, I think is that it doesn't actually affect much in the story at all. Yeah. I think if you have like an insane twist like that in a, in a fast plot uh, uh, that that has a character suddenly taken off the board, it should actually change the game. It should upend everything. But Mary's death goes virtually unremarked upon for the remainder of the episode. It just it just doesn't like when grief goes. Oh, well, Harry, technically your actions got your wife killed. So think about that. Aren't you kind of technically a murderer? It's feeble. I think what you're getting at there is this. There's this kind of cold. It's kind of ironic because Moffat talks. I'll get more into this later, but he talks a lot about how he wanted to avoid a lot of his usual structure, which is quite mechanical and intricate when he writes stories, especially farces, which this show kind of partially is. He's normally very mechanical and plotted out and, and intricate with how he does his storytelling. And he said he wanted to do something different. Did you always have a, a kind of endpoint in mind? I mean, I'm lucky enough to have seen the whole thing, and it is astonishing and surprising all the way through. But did you know where it was going? Did, did, I knew did you know? certain bits of where it was going. I knew uh, how it was going to resolve. But, uh, but the, what I wanted to do was just set all the characters running and see how badly wrong it could go. Mm. You know, not in a... 
You know, if you're doing a, I mean, a, a real proper farce, you have planned every detail of what goes wrong. And it is quite mechanistic and you laugh because you're seeing a pattern emerge. But this, this is a bunch of people who are all desperate and just seeing things explode unexpectedly and things that have got nothing to do with the plot, literally colliding with elements of the show. I just, I, I wanted to sort of blow it up. Mm. You, know, it's a, you know, because it's a crisis and people don't make increasingly smart decisions when they're afraid. You've never thought, have you? If I could just be a bit more emotional, then I'd be a bit more clever about this puzzle. You don't ever think that, do you? No. Right. So uh, you, you realize it's just gonna get more and more uncontrolled. But you know, the big, the big elements, the big reveals and uh, resolves uh, were all there, yeah. One of the things about writing this uh, was normally things I write uh, often, um, are sort of a kind of puzzle in a way where there are all sorts of secrets and revelations and twists. And I didn't want to do that this way. I wanted to stay in the moment and just try and take, uh, keep the problem getting worse and then sort of look at all the characters and say, well, okay, well, what would you do? And what would you do? And what would you do? So uh, once we move into four, uh, we do something that I really sort of decided I would not do in this show. Because I'm very inclined to do out-of-sequence storytelling. I'm very inclined to the wars of flashback. Uh, and I said, well, I'm not doing that. I'm going to be in the moment throughout this show. And I just thought, damn it. We have to have... Ben is now going to move to the front. Yeah. Or, or to be one of the most important characters. And the relationship with Janice has got to be real. So I'm going to have to go back. You know, he didn't want to do his usual non-linear stuff. He didn't want to do as puzzly as usual. So he's trying to do a more kind of naturalistic, I guess, way of writing. So you'd think <laughs> you'd get some like more warmth, more warm and organic writing out of him if he's trying to do that. But I got the complete opposite. This show felt very, yeah. very cold and mechanical, to, especially when he has the time traveler's wife this same year came out, which feels more than perhaps anything since Joking Apart, feels like it's truly pouring out of his heart, you know, that show. It, it feels so deeply personal and warm coming from him. And then this show, I mean, it's okay to be cold and mechanical, but when he's taking out his intricate storytelling, it's kind of like you've, it's like he's playing with his weaknesses with the show. There's another point on one of these uh, interviews where he's saying what he liked with, you know, the last scene with Janice, the post-credits is, well, you never really knew Janice, did you? I remember uh, uh, David kept kept going at me over a film. He's saying, okay, what, so there's a sequel, right? And he's planning the perfect murder for Janice. Is that what it is? And I'm saying, not, not necessarily. <laughs> you know, it's the... Because I, I, I mean, part of what I was thinking uh, with that scene was just to carry on with, you don't know Janice. So, I know. you know, there's a whole thing. I know, that's And she's... Uh, so, so uh, and, and the whole theme of the show is everyone's a murderer. Yeah, so's the one in the cellar. Right? I know. That's not that's not an angel I know. cast down. I know. That's just, you know, I know, another person with a with a with a dark skin. Yeah. So if you know, we could we could do nothing at all. You I know. know. And that's a, for me, that's a perfectly good ending with yeah. you know, Jefferson Grief three weeks from death saying, you know, yeah, okay. He says it's interesting that you know you know, you don't really know people that well you know, in shows and stuff. And I'm like, well... But that's not interesting. <laughs> this, this, you've, you, you're the one writing the show. If you're, <laughs> like, if you're under-characterizing a character, uh, I don't understand who's meant to be impressed by this. You're, like, saying... It's like the Jefferson thing. It's like, well, you didn't work it out. I tricked you. It's like, I... But you're the one who wrote it. Like, I, it's not real. <laughs> like, I don't understand where this weird sense of, like, intellectualism is, like, coming from. 
So it's like the the banality of Mary's ending and then like, well, look, Janice was different than you thought all along. You know, people are more than you know, but they're, they're characters that you made. It's I, I'm confused by the kind of outlook behind the story. You know, I, th- I think a lot of the insight that the story is trying to offer at various points is honestly quite just flat and not that interesting. I mean, every time there's a line about how, gosh, it isn't like this in the in the crime TV shows, and gosh, no one ever needs to pee on Columbo, and gosh, oh, it's only our first go doing a murder, the police have lots of experience, and it's, it's like, oh God, you, you, you know, Moth could churn out those on a, on a conveyor belt for eternity, but it wouldn't make them actually, I think past a certain point, they're not actually worth saying anymore. That's not. It's, they're no substitute for writing characters and who actually have interiority. It's yeah. It's it's like he's stumbling upon you. Hey, in real life, certain thing happens, and then he's putting it in the story. But it's like it that doesn't make it good storytelling just because it's real life. And I know he knows this because you know, like we were listening to last week, he was saying how life is more like a you know a comedic sitcom more than like a drama where everyone's dour all the time. So I know he like has a sense of the way you present things in fiction, you know, can or cannot be realistic. It has to, you know, accord with a certain style you're going for. So my theory is always that life is far more like a sitcom yeah. than it is like a drama. I mean, in drama, people remember to be serious all the time. Yeah. And if uh, and if they're sad, it's conveniently enough raining. And, uh, they, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it's, it's far too consistently uh, in the same mood. In real life, everything's inappropriate. Yeah. Everything's wrong. You're saying goodbye to the love of your life and you're never going to see them again, but you're desperate to go to the loo, so you yeah. wish they'd hurry up. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, there's the, you know, yeah, that, yeah. do you know what I mean? The comedy yes. is what our lives are like yeah. inappropriate, badly timed, <laughs> uh, in poor taste, yeah. um, uh, with lots of low humor. That's what yeah. our lives are like. And that's what I, I think at the beginning of Inside Man, when we first meet Harry and Mary and Ben, um, that, uh, it's it's a sitcom about a vicarage that yeah. just takes a, a, a slightly dodgy <laughs> turn. So it just 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 throwing in his perception of this is how things are in real life that doesn't make for good storytelling. It's just kind of experimental to like say what if we you know threw out the rules and did it however we want. I guess I guess he's trying something different, but it it just feels so slapdash to me. Like he said he said at one point something he liked with his story was how he kept assailing tenant's character with events what makes you think you can control everything that's going on there which is what i keep uh, which yeah. i kept trying to just assail him with events yeah because that's what happens like, you know again it's a feature of oh, everything i've ever written i'm not uh, every most television shows is that you forget other things are happening and if other things are happening some of them might affect what you're doing right exactly now. because in real life lots of things happen at once and you can't control everything so like something random can happen in real life that then affects you and like, yeah, but it's not a documentary. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I think he got a little obsessed with the idea of what if I did how it's not normally done on TV to like the detriment of making good TV in the first place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think also maybe maybe part of his idea was um, uh, grief talks about uh, the only seeing positives, things that are there, being unable to see things that are not there. Mm. But that's uh, when you're when you're writing fiction. That's not suppo- that's not what what it's supposed to be. There are supposed to be things that are there that, <laughs> that are present. Otherwise, you're, otherwise you're just you're just hopping from something to the next thing. He's at this stage in his career, like we said last time, where he's adapted or like wrote in the universes that he's like had deep connection to. Like he's done Time Traveler's Wife, he's done Doctor Who, he's done Sherlock, he's done Jekyll, and he's he's accomplished so much. Like. The Guardian can report how many BAFTAs he has. You know, he's he's accomplished so much that I understand this kind of 
self-reflective, what if I do different stuff now? Like he said, he was really trying to do no, no nonlinear storytelling in this because he does that so often, but he ended up relenting and putting the Janus flashbacks in episode four because he felt you're kind of losing sense of the characters because they were going through so much crazy stuff and he had to make the Janice Ben thing feel real to get drama out of that. The relationship with Janice has got to be real. So I'm going to have to go back. I and love fill it. Yeah. Fill it in. And, and I, I, I was very, very apprehensive about writing those scenes. And I was thinking, I, I think I'm not doing right. But then I thought, no, this is good. Because it had two benefits. One, it told us who Ben and Janice were to each other. But it also reminded you who everybody really was. I know. Because we've had three episodes of hell. Just remind, just, you know, we, we, we go back in time a little bit. And remember, no, this is the nice happy vicar. who's slightly useless, but uh, but charming. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, the funny wife, the charming, difficult son. Uh, the slightly bossy maths tutor. Yeah. That's all who they are. There's yeah. no, nothing more to them than that. They're totally. all quite harmless. Yeah. And he said he usually writes puzzles, but in this show he wanted to stay in the moment constantly. What would you do in a given moment, even if it's a random thing happening? One of the things about writing this uh, was normally things I write uh, often um, are sort of a kind of puzzle in a way where there are all sorts of secrets and revelations and twists. And I didn't want to do that this way. I wanted to stay in the moment and just try and take, uh, keep the problem getting worse and then sort of look at all the characters and say, well, okay, well, what would you do? And what would you do? And what would you do? And to keep it honest and keep saying things about, and the rest of the world is still going on. So, so the wrong guy will come to the door, uh, and do something, right? Uh, and interrupt and be completely wrong. So, but uh, but the, what I wanted to do was just set all the characters running and see how badly wrong it could go. Mm. You know, not in a you know if you're doing a I mean a, a real proper farce, you have planned every detail of what goes wrong, and it is quite mechanistic, and you laugh because you're seeing a pattern emerge. But this this is a bunch of people who are all desperate and just seeing things explode unexpectedly and things. I've got nothing to do with the plot, literally colliding with elements of the show. I just, I, I wanted to sort of blow it up. And that's why we got the post guy coming to the door multiple times, because that's a real thing that happens in real life. Um, and that's why uh, Mary needed to use the bathroom in, you know, dramatic moments. Those ones I thought kind of worked though, because they kind of played into the drama. They heightened the tension. But there were other things where he's like just adding this happens in real life where I feel like they weren't very effective. Kind of on that note, I thought um, when Mary ran into Beth eventually and it sort of descended into this quite sort of broad sort of silly comedy which revolved around Mary trying to like keep up this performance of being threatening and like dangerous but though being incredibly bad at it because she's just like an utterly unthreatening person and she's not actually capable of like horrific violence and stuff like that she's just waving around a bread knife and it's all very silly um like i mean i thought that bit was like pretty funny and i wouldn't have minded if that tone had persisted throughout the rest of the episode because i think at the very least there's an element of an underlying theme in there which is that regular people aren't like the glamorous murderers that you, you, know, you might see in Death Row or whatever. They, they are just stumbling and shambling around through this and they don't really know what they're doing. And that's not exactly a new theme, characters who don't know what they're doing, getting embroiled in a whole thriller drama. But, you know, it's, it's at least something to be getting on with. It's something to, something to look at, something to explore. It's something fun. Uh, the, the fact that it just immediately led to 
Mary wandering out into the road and having a shot parallel with the road so you can all tell like a few seconds in advance she's going to be hit by a truck and she just gets reduced to a smear on the road. It was terribly disappointing. <laughs> and that ridiculous Morag line where she comes up and she's like, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> Morag connects to something I find quite confusing about the show and what Moffat was trying to do with it. Because Morag's big thing is like, crime is crazy, you know, little lady. Like, crime is bad and I do crimes and crime is hardcore and stuff. And like, okay, sure. Um, and then you see in all these interviews, Moffat keeps going about murdering is really bloody hard. What do you do? There's so much admin, like the show says. But it does allow you to explore, like you say, the, the darker parts of ourselves um, that hopefully we'll never experience in real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The character who doesn't sort of, I mean, in a strange way, who articulates most of that really is Mary, I think. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, when yeah. she, she's talking about what it actually takes to do a murder. There's a, we, we get into that, you know, because it's not that easy to kill people. Trust me. Um, you know, it's, uh, and so uh, Lindsay as Mary does a lot of the, the actual yeah. practicalities. There's a rather, uh, a rather terrific scene, I think, in episode two, where, she, uh, where, where Lindsay breaks down, well, what, how? How do you stop them being alive exactly? You, don't, you can't just shoot them with a ray gun, which you can do in other shows. Um, yeah. I wrote down this line, actually. Yeah, Mary says at one point, how does anyone get murdered? There's so much admin. <laughs> and like, yeah, but it's like he's trying to set up like this great story about what murder is really like. And I'm just kind of confused where this is coming from because, like, where is this coming from? Moffat presumably has only, like, read stories and watched shows about murder. So I don't understand the idea that he is like this extra insight into what murder is really like. Like, how would he have that extra insight? It feels yeah. more to me like it's like it's like I um, you know, like when someone's making another movie in a series or something, and they bring in outside influences and it kind of injects it with new stuff and new perspectives. And you know, when they other people make movies in a series and they only reference the movies before it, so it becomes like this cannibalistic. Um, it's like a copy of a copy of a copy thing. You know, we're like when they make a Star Wars movie and they're referencing stuff in the first Star Wars movie, not realizing it's a allusion to like another movie. And so it kind of gets degraded and less meaningful and less interesting visually over time because they're losing out the actual unique factor of it. I kind of feel here it's like Moffat is like riffing on other murder stories do murder like this. And I'm going to do it more realistic like this by like flipping what other murder stories do. And I don't think that's actually pulling in what murder is really like, because where does that coming from? Everything he's like saying is like, well, murder shows don't normally show this stuff. But I I mean, I don't know really what I'm asking for here. I'm not asking for Moffat to go consult with murderers or like become a true crime person or anything. But I, there's, there's like this kind of sense of like an elite view of what murder is really like. And I'm just confused where that comes from. And certainly nothing in this show I found more insightful about murder than even even something like Broadchurch. Like, I didn't really feel like the show was actually adding any unique insight into murder you want to get from any other BBC thriller type show like this. I don't know. Ty, you've probably seen more BBC murdery type shows than uh, either of us. What would you say to that kind of thing? Was this show adding extra insight into murder really? Or was it just like riffing off other murder stories? No, it, yeah. Uh, you'll be interested to know, actually, one of the things that I wanted to mention is that uh, Neil Cross, another writer I quite like, uh, wrote Luther, um, did an ITV uh, um, murder. Uh, it was actually a, which a, ITV a, person died. Uh, I'm sorry, what's that? 
You said you did an ITV murder. Did they not commission something? <laughs> oh, oh, right, I see, yeah. You did, you did, <laughs> yeah. You did, a, you did a, uh, an ITV like murder drama thing. Uh, right. It was, like, it was like a spectre haunting um, uh, Russell Tovey. Um, the, you know, the, there are bits of it I could enjoy. Russell Tovey was all right. But generally it was crap. And I was quite, dis- I was quite disappointed by it because I, I do like Neil Cross's work. Um, but it was it was sort of a farce and it was quite embarrassing um, and, and ended in, in a really ridiculous way. And this reminded me a lot of that in that there was there's very little substance to it. And I feel like it was. Um, but in both cases, these are two writers, two good writers um, whom, whose works I've, I've greatly enjoyed in the past, trying their hand at something out of their comfort zone and. Um, I don't know what it is. I, I can't say for Cross, but I can say for Moffat that I don't think he's put enough effort into this. I think that's that's more the issue than anything else, really, isn't it? It, it seems to be sort of like a, hmm, what would happen if I did this? Rather than a, I'm 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 going to I'm going to produce some scripts and, and really will them down to the best they can be. I think it's just you can kind of feel, or I I mean, if a writer's fooling me, then that's great. That means they're writing it well. But I think sometimes you can kind of feel if something's been written from a kind of real world knowledge or if something's been written from just like this intertextuality bouncing off other texts that are bouncing off texts and who knows how many texts you have to go up before it's someone who's actually engaged with something. You know, I've, I've, re- I've read a novel series once where like the first 11 books were from an actual soldier who fought an actual, you know, he fought in the Vietnam War, he killed men, he killed women. And so, when he writes death scenes in these novels, there's a certain texture to them and a certain emotion to them that just feels different from other writers. So, he ended up dying and another writer completed this series. And when that other writer wrote battle scenes, it was like he got the voices of the characters right, but he it, it just felt so utterly different because this second writer has grown up, you know, he's never fought in any war. He's, he, I don't know if he's ever punched anyone. He just the The real world experience bleeds into people's writings in such a concrete way that I think you can feel when something's motivated by reality and when something's not. Even even I know um Matt Smith's current show, uh, House of the Dragon, when a female director was doing an episode which uh, had sex scenes in it, it felt motivated by like a, a female vision towards sex that, you know, I, I haven't seen when, you know, male directors direct sex scenes. It felt so fundamentally different um, visually in how it was being framed because it's coming from it's not a man thinking, well, how would a woman do a sex scene? It's coming from a woman who has the actual, you know, knowledge of how, you know, she would frame that. It's There's a there's a reality that, you know, can come into what you write. And I think it was here sometimes in this show because that great moment in the first episodes where Tennant starts blocking the door, you know, big tall Tennant saying, I'm not blocking the door. Um, that was really creepy. I think that was one of the most successful beats of the show. I don't know if you guys agree. Yeah, I do. That felt so effective to me. Because because it's real. That's something Moffat would know. He's a well. He's he's a guy, and he's got friends that are big guys. Imagine Russell T Davies blocking the door when Moffat's trying to leave a meeting or something, and Russell saying, "I'm not blocking the door." And, you know, Russell would be huge, <laughs> tearing over him. You know, Moffat would be thinking, "You are. You're being all affable and saying you're not." Of course, this never would have happened. But it's an actual experience, you know, and so it feels real in the show, and it feels actually creepy and effective. I think it's not. It's not like Moffat has to have murdered someone to write a good murder story. But I think there's a point where. If you're trying to base your story on like, this is the real story of what murder's like, but where's that reality coming from? I 
Yeah. Moffat is not actually a criminologist. He just comes up with word plays and shit and then writes a criminologist character who notices the word plays. And he's not even like a criminology nerd, I think, the way Neil crosses is my impression. And so I, there's absolutely zero wrong with not being, you know, super knowledgeable about some topic you're doing in your story. But I think it's something wrong when you're trying to set that story as like the real story of how this stuff happens when you're not that, you, you know what I mean? Like the some of the sexism stuff in the show or the gender differences stuff I think worked really well. Because that stuff Moffat, you know, he thinks about and knows about and, you know, is really in his brain a lot and he has actual experience with. And you don't need that for everything. But when you're like trying to say this is what murder would really be like, this is Columbo doesn't show you this. How do you know? You've only watched Columbo. You haven't actually engaged with other murder stuff, at least is my impression watching this. And so I don't know if elitist is the right word, but I feel like it's a misguided venture to like say this is the real story of how stuff happens. Yeah. And I wouldn't really know, but I'm saying it is. There's um, that Janice line. We were talking about the sexism in the show. There was that Janice line um, in episode four to Ben that uh, only men, something about only men knowing the, the luxury of, of not not being not being afraid of being hurt by another man. Um, and that's a really interesting line because sometimes I, I hear Moffat doing like attempts at um, jokes about sexism or attempts at like sort of p- pithy lines of dialogue about men versus women and, and, and you know and it never really lands for me i don't think that he he really quite knows what he's talking about he's, he's pulling it out from like a from like, like a 90s feminism handbook rather than and sometimes I just i think you know talk to your wife talk to your wife about feminism and and about sexism and this sort of seems like maybe this has come from super <laughs> i wonder i wonder to what degree this is not actually stephen moffat's line because it was too good uh i thought or maybe you know maybe he's just grown up and that's great. I, well, I think something he does have real experience with, again, it's very obvious in the show, is having a child and, you know, the drive to protect your child at whatever cost, even if that cost becomes, you know, something despicable. And that's why some of the stuff with Ben I found chilling in a way. And I guess it's because there was like, it's not necessarily that there's more of a reality to it, but there's more of a, there's more behind what's being written. It's not just like a line riffing off another line from another show. There's actual stuff going on there, you know, like the debts the couple goes to to try and protect Ben, you know, how how insane they get over it. Because, you know, that's something Moffat, I mean, he's looking at his own son, you know, when the show's being made. Like, that's all coming from a sort of real place. And so, I think some of that, I just the fundamental, the idea of trapping a woman, you know, in the cellar because you're afraid she could ruin your son's life, that works for me because I think that premise makes sense and it's motivated by an actual you know, fear or something Moffat could fear about himself or, you know, something a parent could fear about themselves. It's just when we get into this kind of Jefferson fantasy America world, like Gig said in the last discussion, that it all kind of unmoors itself from reality, but for some reason gets more and more impressed by itself, even then the stuff that I think is better materially on the show. Like some Ben dialogue was actually based on uh, things Moffat's son has said. You know, that's you can't get more real than that. You're right, the Louis is particularly brilliant in the later Isn't episodes. He, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know where you found him, but he's, <laughs> he's one to watch. He was recommended to me. Genuinely. By <laughs> Mike Flanagan. Uh, oh, he who, was, yes, he was yeah, in Midnight was, Mass, yeah. the brilliant Midnight Mass. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you must watch uh, on Netflix, Midnight Mass. Uh, it's fantastic, and Louis was in it. And, uh, and uh, Mike Flanagan sent me an email saying, he's brilliant. Your son, um, <laughs> and we were looking to cast a Ben, and uh, and uh, we thought, well, okay, Ben's a bit based on Louis. That conversation about the homework is real, right? I had that conversation. <laughs> I wondered, yeah. Um, yeah, believable. Yeah, definitely. There is. I mean, um, 
I, I do. I have to admit, there is some. Uh, uh, there is a scene I really enjoyed. I think from episode three, um, the the really good dramatic irony moment in which the police are upstairs uh, and they that they reveal what's in the note, and Janice starts, you know, th- th- uh, th- thrashing around, and I, I I really enjoyed that scene. It was a really actual, uh, actually very good tension. I thought, um, and I can't really think of any other moment, literally any other moment between episodes three and four that I really enjoyed. I think um, Tenant's breakdown was okay. Um, it was muddied by I'm a fucking vicar again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, 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 yeah. so the only scene I properly enjoyed unencumbered was um, that, that moment of tension where with uh, the two detectives. I, well, episode three, I quite liked the beginning where, um, first of all, it's very colourful. I love the blues of Tenant's shirt against the bright green um, garden outside. It's a nice looking scene. It's the, I, I, I generally liked um, a lot of the aesthetic of the show. I think it did a good job setting out the geography of the vicarage, the very large, you know, place tenant inhabits because the geography was so important to the show. I know not every show would have had me understanding, you know, like where the rooms were in relation to each other. Uh, but anyway, the start of episode three is one of those points where the show I think is like partial to me or it's it's so absurd that it's, you know, darkly comic to me because Tenet doing, like we talked about last time, the kind of Christian self-martyrdom, you know, I'm Jesus kind of thing of, you know, I take it upon myself and I'll burn in hell for my relatives, you know, I'll destroy myself. And, you know, that kind of, there's a real egoism and attempt at nobility underneath that kind of thing. It's like, you look look how powerful I am or look how much like Jesus I am to, you know, to be doing this, this self-sacrifice, regardless of if anyone wants it around me, regardless of what my wife is actually saying to me, regardless of this is a wise decision, this is, the, you know, look how powerful it is for me to sacrifice myself and, you know, save. Anyway, there's so much psychology you can read into that kind of self-martyrdom thing. Anyway, and in some, it, depending on how that was played, you probably could read that as noble, you know, to some extent, even though it's ridiculous. It's like him saying, I own the child exploitation materials, but for him to, <laughs> to stay up all night, like, um, sullenly like walking around his study printing out despicable material and you know <laughs> tapping on his keyboard finding more links to download it from like on the family internet and then him coming out and his voice breaking being like i downloaded more it's so absolutely insane what he's done like it's so completely absurd and he's got this hangdog expression like i downloaded more you know i did this for the family <laughs> it's like this is not what jesus would do <laughs> jesus would not have done the absolute insanity of what you've done the last few hours. So, I thought that was very funny in a bizarre way. Tenant looking so sad and like would be noble there about his great sacrifice of <laughs> printing out this despicable stuff and, you know, gingerly putting it into his safe. It's so performative. It's such a performance that what he did, I just, I thought that was so absurd that I thought it was an effective scene. In light of that whole sequence where Harry is acting in just such an absurd way, despite being you know, so supposedly composed and sane, I think it, it made me feel disappointed with where his storyline ultimately climaxed, which was his big rant to Beth in the fourth <laughs> episode, where where you know he, he's just he's just been interrupted and in trying to finish off Janice, and he starts breaking down and melting down and and putting all the, the themes of the show into dialogue. I mean, ah, oh, how dare you be afraid of me? I am I am the great vicar. Because I think what what annoyed me about that. <laughs> How dare you look frightened of me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because 
I think it's just so easy to start writing a character like that, to have them go off their rocker and start like explaining all the themes and shit. And the thing is, because it had been so well established before that point that even when Harry was acting in a supposedly non-office rocker manner, he was still acting in an incredibly bizarre and sinister and doing incredibly strange, scary things, even like without being like panicking and spluttering and whatever so like it just feels like a cop-out to start to have him basically just like go like crazy at the, at the last moment and just start like spilling everything just so you can monologue more it was just like what, what the hell like it's, it's, it's not real dialogue it's kind of like a um it's not flanderizer it's like a kind of parody of himself like it's like a parody of he became and it's like tenet is so good at that type of stuff. He's so good at everything in the show because um, he's such a good actor and he always commits, even if materials don't... This is why he was such a great Doctor Who because you can give him the most half-rate Doctor Who script that, you know, a lot of Doctor actors will look bored during and he commits to it a thousand percent as much as he would, you know, for the greatest script he ever got. Something I love about him as an actor. Um, so, all through this show, I think he was carrying it so well in giving his all and really thinking through, I guess, what he's doing. So, when he's like saying... Don't you judge me. I've acted out of love. Uh, why are you looking frightened? How dare you look frightened? That is insulting to me. <laughs> Don't you dare tell me what to do. I'm a husband. I'm a fucking vicar. Like, it's very entertaining to watch him do that. And it like, it's saying themes of the show out loud and stuff. Yeah, but I know what you mean. It's it's like a reduction of the character who I think it was quite an interesting character across the show. And I we had this great interplay of, you know, there's some like decency about him. And then there's like this undercurrent of, like, I don't know if we want to say malevolence, but like arrogance and like the lying is authorship stuff. There's all this interesting stuff about the character you could dig into. Then it's kind of a shame is scenery chewing and great as it is to watch to see him kind of openly reduce himself in that kind of dialogue. And like, I don't disagree with the idea that deep down a man like this is what he's saying there. But it, it's it's a lot to have him actually say it, I guess, isn't it? I think there's kind of a pattern with the characters trailing off in a way at the end, because um, not only do you get Tennant sort of like just freaking out and just babbling there in that scene, but you also get Mary just, you know, panicking and wandering out into the road. And then you get like Janice passively basically achieving nothing in the whole of the last episode. And you get Ben getting carbon monoxide poisoning, going crazy and beating over the hammer. In all of these cases, they're actual characters and characterizations and the things associated with them as characters don't end up playing into how their stories wrap up very much at all it just becomes kind of arbitrary like a completely different character could end up wandering into that exact same those, those exact same positions without without like it doesn't feel very specific to them it doesn't feel it just feels like we've wasted our time like i was fascinated how in episode four we get that whole sequence of ben and janice when but janice is tutoring ben we get more of their relationship we see more of their interiority like it feels like that would be a perfect launching pad to have ben and janice's storyline actually be character driven somehow have them reach some sort of interaction or agreement but no ben gets carbon dioxide poisoning and just beats janice up with a hammer it's like it's just so anticlimactic in every way it's it, it's it's like a it's a rejection of the idea of working with theme or character in favor of just sort of farting out a bit of mayhem i guess it's you know moff usually writes with such intricacy and here he's doing a little more improvisational he's not as me he's well i think he's more mechanical in some ways he's not as mechanistic he's not as planned as usual you know, that's why there's so many tangential elements that, like, collide with the plot. And he's really interested in people not making smart decisions like he might normally write smart characters. But it like it it, it makes this trailing off sense that his finales don't usually get, which, yeah. I also thought 
the um that is insulting to me speech was it felt so summative of the character like we're saying like too much so yet in an interview um Moffat is asked uh to what extent narcissism or narcissists play a part of the show and Moffat seems a little taken aback and he's like saying he doesn't think that narcissism is much a part of the show he says Harry's not a psychopath he was just trying to do the right thing you know that's the idea of the show and I was confused by that because <laughs> You know, I've seen episode four and I thought that last speech of his is like directly contravening Moffat saying there's no narcissism much, you know, narcissism isn't really part of the show. Harry's not a psychopath. Uh, narcissistic. I, mean, I, I, I don't think there are many in this show, actually, of the, of the kind you describe. I don't think, I mean, I think the, the tragedy is they're not psychopaths. Uh, you know, Harry's not a psychopath. He's trying to do the right thing and he's doing it badly. He's doing it wrongly. But the, the most interesting question you could ever ask in the whole world is why do good people do bad things? We know why bad people do bad things. It's a boring question, right? What have you done to her? Don't you dare. Don't you dare judge me. I have acted out of love. I have acted out of duty. I have done my best and nothing, none of this, none of it is my fault. Okay, okay. Why are you looking, friend? How dare you look frightened of me? That is insulting to me. Just put the hammer down, okay? No, don't you dare. Don't you dare tell me what to do. No, I, di I didn't. I'm a kind and loving man. I am a husband. I am a father. How dare you look frightened of me? Look at me! Look at me! I'm a fucking vicar! But he's... <laughs> what he was saying at the end there, I don't think he's a psychopath, but I think he... I don't see how you can say narcissism wasn't a huge part of the character. Huge part of the character. If Moffat didn't see it, Tennant certainly did. Uh, and, yeah. I, and I was, I think it was Paul McGuigan that did this, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Wasn't it? So I think Paul McGuigan did. It was definitely there. It was definitely present in the in the character. There's um Paul, our director, he said something interesting. He said he wanted people screaming at the TV watching the show. And also, I also liked there's a there's a f film called The Out of Towners, which is a Jack Lemmon movie. And I always remember watching that and thinking, why are you doing that? What the fuck is wrong with you? And then I think that's the whole idea. I want people to be screaming at the TV going, why did you make those choices? What, what were you thinking about? Because it's desperation. And, and that's always a great thing about this. Well, certainly uh, I was screaming at the TV for people's choices quite often. <laughs> uh, sometimes it was the characters. <laughs> There's also the director and tenant. Another interesting thing they said was they wanted to direct and film like visually in the performance the tenant stuff in the early episodes to feel like a sitcom and then strip away the style into like a totally different visual and performance style in the later episodes. And they, they definitely did that. With David and the story there, and we kind of wanted to make that. It was interesting you said about sitcom. We kind of wanted it to feel very cosy and, and, and very polite, you know. And then eventually as, as, as you're going to see episode two and three, the camera starts to get very active and starts to move around the house and therefore builds that and so it takes away that sitcom element to it sort of strips it away and I think that's what's interesting about the, this, the, the show for me was I was so intrigued by how the starting point and the end point where those two things are and I'm sure everybody watching it tonight will think well where does this go you know and, and that for me as a filmmaker was really interesting you know? I like Moth sitcom um, but this didn't stick for me uh, I don't know about you guys, but this stuff. Actually, you know what? Well, I, su I suppose Gig, you did say that um, uh, that Mary waving around the, the the bread knife 
you, you didn't sound overly enthusiastic about it, but you did say that you could find some humor in it. I really struggled with that. It was at that point where I just thought, oh, it pulled me out. Yeah, God, what is what what, what is even <laughs> the point in me? Yeah, was even the point in me finishing this show? And I do normally enjoy the, the moth farcical sitcom stuff that he does, and I think that. In, in in other shows with other actors, maybe that could have worked, but it, it didn't work in that instance for me. It was it just it was so bad. It was really really awful. I didn't like the performances of it either. I, I thought it was it was just it was just dreadful. I don't, I really I haven't a lot good to say about this. I haven't a lot bad to say about it either. I just I I, I actually I messaged Neo yesterday, so I'm so I'm so I feel so depleted by it, and it genuinely did upset me a bit. I, actually, I went to bed and I couldn't, I was so energized thinking about it, but not in a good way. And like, a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm shocked and offended at how bad it is that I, I couldn't sleep for hours. Uh, and I was just staying on my phone and doing other stuff because I, I just, I was so raring to talk about how upset, but I, you know, that you wouldn't have had much substance out of me last night. I was just annoyed. I just, I, I, I just feel disappointed. It's, <laughs> It's interesting you bring up, like, dicking around on your phone, like, fooling around on the internet, because something Moffat brought up, which I didn't get from the show, maybe you guys did, that I thought it was interesting, was that as Jefferson, you know, looks over Janice's Facebook, he starts developing a crush on her. No, no I loved all that. I also uh, liked the fact, because I remember thinking when that was, when the idea of finishing that, finishing that way came, came to me was, as I, I think I was writing episode three at the time, I was thinking... I think I think Jefferson's sweet on Janice. <laughs> I, think he's, I think he quite likes her. He's, he, the more he reads about her, and she's yeah, difficult, yeah, gonna, isolated, yeah, yeah, yeah. tricky. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I think he. Yeah. I think he's into her. Yeah, you know? special new app. Yeah, like Bumble for murderers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if there's a season right. two, is that I, I I missed that. Is that a thing? I mean, there's that sequence where he talks about how Janice has clearly has seen the worst of humanity and she's chosen to to remove herself uh, or whatever. Like maybe, maybe uh, there's a slight admiring tone in that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I can sort of see where it's coming from, but it's not it's not a big thing in any way. Yeah, you know, I think a big problem, especially with um, this finale, but all over the place. I think it was this this just the rep- the repetitiveness. Like, I mean, in this in this last episode, how many times is, do we get this back and forth of like, no, you mustn't call your dad. No, you mustn't. You must call the police. You must do this. <laughs> no, I oh, I can't do this. It's just so it's just so much in a loop. In a loop. It's just it's just ridiculous. And I feel that sense of not having much to say and just sort of scattershotly just slopping spaghetti at the wall leads to that sense of fundamental messiness. Like I know um at one point there's a scene where after Ben has beaten up Janice and he thinks he's killed her, he runs out of the house, starts vomiting, and Morag chases him down in her car to, to watch him vomit. But I was like, what, why is that scene there? <laughs> what on earth what on earth did that add? I was, I was just so cu- curious about that. I, I just feel there are little bits all over the place where there's just strange redundancies and things which aren't really uh like serving the overall structure it just feels messy it feels first draft like yeah i th- i think it's because he's moffat hasn't written it as intricate as he would do a lot of other scripts i think this is the product of this brave new style it reminds me of um do, do you remember russell t davies talking about writing doctor who series three finale and he's acting like he stumbled upon a novel new idea of what if I don't do foreshadowing and what if I just say paradox machine it's just a new idea and it's like adrenaline as new stuff keeps getting thrown at you as I improvise the script and I I get kind of that sense um, from a lot of stuff in this show just it's to feel the adrenaline of you know what if a new thing 
suddenly happens. You know, you, you, uh, that the whole bit where in I think uh, at the end of episode three, um, Mary ends up driving away in the car, and then well, I mean, what does that amount to? She turns around, and comes straight back. <laughs> it just feels like it, plotting wise, it's, it's it's just a sense of. It does feel very improvisational, but it's just, uh, I, I think it's just awkward. I think if you're a creator of fiction, then you are essentially you're weaving a world where there is no such thing as random chance. Every event that happens in this world is constructed by you as the author. And I think if you relinquish the responsibility as author of guiding those events in a way to convey what you want to convey, then you're just going to end up with something that kind of sucks. Like, even if you tell a story that is about the unpredictability and chaotic nature of life, it's still... I think on some level needs to actually have it needs to be worked through in a way that conveys that idea well and not just in a way that's like awkward or like redundant or naff yeah i think the different aspects of the show not gelling together i think gets to me here because moffat is so good at gelling aspects that seem unrelated together not just like plot stuff but theme stuff as well he's so good at finding interesting little connections and you know weaving together stories out of them that when he's like kind of done the opposite and he's got disparate ideas that aren't really sinking right at least to my eyes it kind of stings a bit more because it's like this is the very you've become the opposite of what you're good at i think moffat has mentioned before that when he was working on adapting other properties and stuff he talks about he approaches it in a way of wanting to bring out what he loves about the original and share that i just think there are things that i really love and i want a go you know that's it i don't think anything sort of i shall now present this to you in a new form i'm not like that at all i just think oh can i have a go oh sherlock holmes awesome uh that's what i think it's enthusiasm it's a level of enthusiasm that overflows into the unfortunate event of a television production. You know, that's uh, that's what it is. Um, I'm not a, a, an adapter for hire, and I certainly never, ever thought that I would end up uh, being someone that people thought of as, uh, you know, a serial adapter. I, I don't think of myself that way at all. I'm obviously wrong, but, uh, but it's, no, it's enthusiasm. It's absolute enthusiasm. Uh, of you know, I'd I'd like to go with this, and 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 in a way, I think a good adaptation, a good version of an original, kind of hopefully communicates to an audience what you love about it. You know, that's what when Mark and I did Sherlock Holmes, we were saying this is what we love about Sherlock Holmes. These are our favorite bits. You know, it's a, it's an act of public worship in a in a strange way. I think in the, when it comes to this original work of his, I feel like the only love of his that he's bringing out is his love of characters like Jefferson, who are just wanking off their own brilliance all the time. And and conversely, his lack of love for a character like Mary, who gets reduced to a smear on the road at an opportune moment and gets forgotten about almost. You've just made me think. So, so much of his work is adapting pre-existing stories and that's you know where he says he's bringing out what he loves about him jekyll sherlock doctor who dracula time traveler's wife and then we've got the original shows but two of them are so fed into from his own life coupling and joking apart which are you know semi-autobiographical pulling so much from his own life and his own you know his initial divorce and then his relationship with sue virtue uh chalk whatever you want to say about it is pulling from his days as a school teacher um, Press Gang, I mean, it's his first show, so there's going to be a fizzing of creativity there because it's the first thing he's, like, doing. Um, and I guess some of it from school as well. Um, but Inside Man, so it's not based on a pre-existing thing. 
b- besides his own stories, I guess, as Gig said, his own bag of tricks he'll have for everything that we tend to love. So it's not based on any pre-existing idea that he can draw is, you know, this is what I love about this. This is how I'm going to adapt it. And it's also not really pulling from his own life or his own experiences as much as, you know, his earlier shows were. Uh, maybe this is why it kind of, one of the reasons it sticks out a bit oddly in his career, because it's like, it's not pulling something he loves. And like, I know there's bits of it coming from his own life. Like I have a kid I would take care of, you know, and I would do terrible things to take care of my kid. But that's not really like a story the way like a divorce or, you know, a, or a marriage is a story. Do, do you get what I'm saying here? It just kind of occurred to me. That this, this is kind of unmoored perhaps from the usual wells of inspiration he uses, whether that's his own life or things he loves. I think um, a running thing you can see in a lot of Moffat shows is usually you'll have a character, typically a man, who uh, almost uses being intelligent and witty as a defense. You know, that, that, that appears in a lot of Moffat stuff. And... The in this show, in Inside Man, the character who would most readily slot into that archetype is Jefferson. But Jefferson doesn't is not in a position to actually be explored in any way, or actually actually be an emotional centre of the show in the way that leads like you know the the, the Doctor or Sherlock or, 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 or you know Spike from Press Gang or whatever. Like he's not Jefferson isn't in a position like them where he's actually being explored. He's just sitting there. Uh, just, uh, so you don't get that that element that could be personal to Moffat of like, you know, having, <laughs> exploring the, the psychosis of this guy who's just t- too intelligent for everyone. Instead, you just get him just floating above everyone in this just uninterrogated circle of, of truth. And it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it feels quite impersonal and uh, disaffected and detached. I, I wish there was more stuff done with the sun because I think some of the moments of the show was quite interesting and affecting were, like, I really loved... When the son is acting like his dad in the cellar and he's saying, shut up, shut up, shut up, I need to think. I was like, this is so cool because it's, it's like what his dad did. And it's interesting to see him, you know, in the situation in the cellar. Is he going to be better than his dad? He's acting similar to his dad. Is he going to be worse than his dad? And I was stunned that he, I mean, it's kind of cheap because it's because of the carbon like poisoning. And so, it's kind of inherently not characterish because of that. But for the son to actually not rise up was a surprise and it didn't just feel like a, like when Mary dies, it feels like a just total banality. But for his son to not rise up to the father, I think it was a really interesting idea. And I wish the carbon stuff wasn't there because I think for a parent writing that, that's a really interesting idea. Like you'd like to think that your children will be better than you or, you know, will do better. You sacrifice so they can build a better life and be better people. But the idea of what if they fail you and, you know, they make the same mistakes as yours, they do even worse. They kill the woman, you know, I- think that was really interesting and I wish the show had kind of explored that more beyond just, you know, Ben vomiting and Morag finding him. Because I thought, what an interesting idea, especially for a vicar, who you know, a religious man who you think would really, really buy into this stuff of, you know, the the son, you know, succeeding and whatnot. So, yeah, the little bits with the family, I thought, sometimes shown in the show. And I wish, like the carbon thing, I hate it because it's just, it's- like, it makes for a good ending of episode three. It's a good cliffhanger of like, oh, shit, the sun's in there and they're going to get poisoned. You know, what's going to happen next? That's good. Like, that's exciting. But it's just it's just robbing character agency and it's just kind of boring for that. Yeah, I think there, there are just so many dramatic possibilities that's kind of suggested in this story, which just aren't taken. <laughs> so many roads not taken. It's, yeah, quite irritating. What did you guys think of Louis Oliver while, while we're on the topic of, of Louis Oliver, Louis Mo- uh, Stephen Moffat's son, Louis Moffat? 
I well, he Moffat says he's not nepotism because he says <laughs> yeah he put him in the casting pool because another showrunner Mike Flanagan recommended him because he's this Moff son's first show is Midnight Mass on Netflix and uh, we just thought maybe we should trump it but we made him audition yeah uh, and other people auditioned too and and we uh, Sue and I were not involved in the uh, in the casting choice at all we told Paul. That he, we would, we would forgive him. It's fine. Go and choose one of these. That one's our son, but don't. <laughs> right? It's okay, whichever one. And uh, we didn't hear from. And we were very, we were fine. Louis was fine about it. He was saying that's absolutely fine. I got no problem. I understand. Sue and I didn't sleep for three nights. Oh. Three nights worrying mm. about it. What we might have done to our family. Thankfully, thankfully, uh, he got the yeah. part. But Mike Flanagan is a huge Moffat fan and nerd. So I feel like. I mean, like, I believe him that he thinks Moff Sun is good. And I thought he was good in this show, but it's it's still kind of a bit of a nepotism-ish circle of, like, one of your super fans becomes a showrunner. And it's like, your son was really good in my show, man. No, really, guys. It's nothing to do with nepotism. We did loads of auditions. He was the best one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I thought he was good. Yeah. Like, if you have a bunch of actors and one of them is the showrunner's son and he's playing the son of the main character, I mean, just, there was just going to be an implicit bias there. No matter how much you might try to, like look past that bias and get over it like it's, it's just always going to be there i think you can't avoid it and it's not necessarily like death to drama or anything and i thought we did a good job um but but yeah you can't just pretend there's no there's no factor of it in there uh, something i really loved with ben and his dad was that moment i thought this is this is one of the reasons why tenet's big speech at the end that is insulting to me as amusing and entertaining as it was it kind of saddens me because it reduces or it kind of blows up the character is because there were so many interesting little notes of Harry across the episodes. One I really loved was the passivity of Harry when he keeps letting Agatha use the study and then he brings him coffee and Agatha- uh, oh, I keep saying Agatha. Um, Janice. Dolly Wells' character, Janice, is um, is um, saying, oh, is tea possible? And he just kind of meekly goes and he takes the coffee back and makes her tea. I just think the way he- um, It's not like she was being domineering, but the way Tennant's character- just very naturally kind of submitted himself. I thought was really interesting there. And his wife kind of say, what are you doing, man? Like, why can't you just assert yourself a little bit? And, you know, it's no one will be insulted if, if they work out in the living room and you keep your study on Sunday of all days, you're a vicar. I thought that was so interesting. Just such an interesting little note with the character. There was some good stuff with Harry. In a way, it's almost like a mini version of the self-sacrificing, isn't it? Obviously, not. It's not. It's not to the same degree as like making yourself into a paedophile. But as the one who undergoes the burden of not having a study, so you know, so the math teacher and the son can have it instead. <laughs> like it's like a mini, a mini uh, microcosm. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I think um, possibly the worst Moffat dialogue I've ever seen was that scene with um, Jefferson and uh, his wife's father. That, uh, that there was two two lines back to back that I that I just thought was was so ridiculous, and I can't believe that, that, that this. I mean, this went through Stephen Moffat prob- probably presumably redrafting. Can I predict the lines you're going to say? Yeah, go ahead. I think you're going to say there was a time we were best friends. <laughs> there was a time we were friends, Jefferson. Best friends. <laughs> Followed by yeah. Is is your other one? Uh... You're a powerful man, Gordon. More than that, you're a powerful criminal. <laughs> yeah. It's so dreadful. It's honestly it's laughable. It's so bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They really stood out to me, those lines. Where do I know that actor from? Is he from Luther? He is from Luther. He's, he's Luther season uh, two. He's the guy that he's the, um, the ex-cop. 
Oh, uh, bit of yes. a sort of bodyguard to Toby. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. And uh, Idris Elba has, has this line: he goes, what are you, what are you, how are you, why, why are you living like this? What are you doing to yourself?" Yeah, that's right. The character did feel kind of ripped from the pages of Luther. <laughs> just, a, just sort of vague, generic yeah. crime boss guy, hard-hearted, sort of like from, from from the Batman version of London, almost. Mm. It's, oh, a character moment I loved with Mary uh, when she cut uh, lit Beth. And she says it wasn't me. Uh, that I I find when I find out it's funny, but I find that kind of stuff so chilling in sh- in shows or real life when someone like does something evil and like that. It's not gaslighting, but like that immediate delusion of it wasn't me. It's it, it's kind of chilling the unreal unreality. I think of it because it's you know it's like how people can divorce themselves from something. So killing is easy. Uh, well, I mean, I don't have the experience, you know, the same way I don't think Moff has the experience, but my impression yeah, I didn't- would be that killing is easier if you divorce yourself from what you're doing. And so, I think the immediate, it's not me, It's it freaks me out because it so obviously is you. I, I didn't really catch that, but yeah, you're, you're, that's, that, you're, yeah, I really like that too, actually, and I'll probably end up thinking more of that. I wish I had called that. There was something similar going on with Harry, wasn't there, like in the earlier episodes, just that sense of like, oh, I'm not, I'm not walking away, just, yeah. just the, the yeah. constant, the complete, like, mm. instant denial and just, um not actually processing what the awful thing you yourself are doing just because it's so outside the realm of what you are willing to believe. You know, I, I think that there's um, lots of dramatic meat you can get out of something like that. And uh, outside of a couple of moments, maybe Moffat doesn't really uh, sort of delve into it that much. What did you think of the thing with Ben and Janice? The life's different now. Everyone cares what people think these days. I'm not putting my phone away because I wouldn't know what everyone's thinking all the time. You know, um, that whole sequence uh, felt like maybe it would be quite good in another show. Like, I, I, I don't know, it just, it just, it, it didn't seem like it was particularly, um, it felt like it was fine on its own and it wasn't necessarily feeding back into the rest of the show in any really, like, important way, especially after finishing the episode. I didn't feel like it, it set up a great deal. Yeah, the things, I, I remember in the last podcast I complained that Janice maybe was lacking interiority and come episode four, we finally got a bit more of a sense of what she's like when she's just with Ben. And, you know, I, I liked seeing all of that. I thought it was a pretty reasonable dialogue in itself, but again, not really hugely keyed in, I didn't think, to the whole show. I did like her, um, this felt like what an actual smart maths teacher motivated maths teacher would say her lines about hard workers are only good at filling up their days lazy people look for shortcuts maths when properly understood is a shortcut 90 percent of human inventiveness is an attempt to have more time off and somewhere to sit you know moffat was a teacher uh before he yeah. sh- show ran press gang and i think that that's a very teachery line and a very math teachery line i thought that was a good line yeah it's like a rare moment where his actual strengths are coming out I, I, what i liked about that line particularly is that a lot of this show felt like uh, Moffat philosophizing, Moffat moralizing, yeah. and just his ideas about his ideas about the world and what he genuinely thinks. And I know for a fact that he isn't a lazy person. No, um, I know that he doesn't believe in laziness. So it was interesting to finally in this show have a character do something that isn't just saying what Stephen Moffat thinks, even if even in some small meaningless way. Yeah, I'm, the man ran Sherlock and Doctor Who at the same time. Like no one. Can, can call him lazy. He, he's a freakishly hard worker. Yeah. Did you like the blessing people identifying weaknesses stuff? I I kind of liked it. I thought it was okay. I thought it was very, it was a moffatism. And then it got to the the bless you line, <laughs> and I was like, oh okay. So it was not it was not really about trying to do a clever line. It was it was trying to do a clever pithy line, 
as a result of those clever lines. Admittedly, I, I do think the fact that Harry's a vicar and she sardonically says bless him at the end, that, that maybe gives it a... I mean, obviously, it's, it's still pithy, but at the very least, that maybe is vaguely tied into the whole religiosity element, but uh, not very well, <laughs> I wouldn't say. It was the same thing as doing Welcome to the Inside. It, it, it just, oh. it doesn't, it, it does, none <laughs> of this stuff sticks for me. I actually like that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the inside, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a sucker for really cheesy, like, title connections like that, so I enjoyed that. Uh, you, um, Tyler, you brought up Breaking Bad and Walter White in the last discussion, and we had, like, a dead ringer for that here when our tenant um, says, I've done wrong things, bad things, but I did them, I'm doing them. For my family. Uh, and you know the show has made it plain. Like he's, what he's doing is such an absurdity. And like his wife is outright saying don't do this. This is the wrong idea. Um, and then at the end he has like his explosion. Where he like it's like the Felina-esque. Let's say the themes of the show you know. Um, thing where he you know. Is, How dare you insult me. I'm, I'm a man and all that stuff. So yeah I, I think Moffat's probably seen. Well it's. Like, yeah, it's, does, does, doesn't. He doesn't need to have seen Breaking Bad. It's a classic. He's a man who's in his 60s. He's, you know, he would have experienced a lot of these emotions and he's probably presumably grown past the self-aggrandizing, I'm doing this stuff for my family, despite my family saying, don't do this stuff and you're doing a bad thing here. But yeah, it was very Breaking Bad-y, that kind of characterization of of Tenet's character. As much as you can, as much as you can say, like, I am a family man you know, kind of self-martyring themselves in a way no one wants is Breaking Baddy rather than just like a very common thing that happens. Yeah, it was. I know Moffat is an atheist, but I I, I liked the little bits he did with, yeah. you know, the, the vicar's religious views. I kind of wish he did more, but then again, maybe this was all he felt he could do well because I think it was actually really quite interesting. I love that his wife is presumably an atheist and he's he's genuinely hurt by that. His stuff about it must be so much easier not believing in hell, which is that classic kind of, I believe him, like when he says that, but it is so self-aggrandizing, isn't it? It's kind of, you know, mm. it's almost Jefferson Grief-esque, like you fools, you know, are not on my level of, you know, understanding what's going on here. But I like, you could actually see how his religion informed him, that, that sense of self-sacrifice, the kind of, I've seen some people not understand what he does with Edgar. Um, not the insane thing in episode two where he, try, where he does the very kind of bad thing of trying to make him confess, but just Tenet's like impulse to cover for Edgar immediately. I've seen a lot of people not understand that, mm. which made perfect sense to me. That just the reflexive, I will fall on my sword, even if it's the stupid decision, even if it makes stuff worse, my impulse is to fall on my sword because that's the good Christian thing to do. That's, you know, how I grew up, people I've grown up around, that the, the psychology of that made perfect sense to me, uh, what Tennant tried to do there. It's almost the compulsion, and in a way, it's the desire to sacrifice yourself, to martyr yourself, you know, to be like Jesus and destroy yourself in in protecting someone else. It's like, it's because I think it is kind of, not that Walter White seemed Christian at all, but it's a vaguely similar thing in, I'm so powerful, you know, that, you know, destroying myself can protect everyone, you know, this this is- my my triumph as a man, even though it's like reducing yourself, it's actually kind of enlarging yourself in a, in an interesting way. Uh, I just in religious terms, I totally bought the initial decision to cover for Edgar, even though it was stupid. It always made sense to me. Yeah, I do too. And you know, we, we've we've spoken a lot about Moffat's psychology on here. It's hard not to do when you're really interested in the biography of a writer, isn't it? 
But I think that, that there is a degree to which um, most Britons, the majority of Britons, have um, a, a, a sort of a latent um, Christianity. And that's just due to the, 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 the way this society was built, the foundations of it, um, and the... Uh, you know, Christianity through the medieval and the, and the um, up to sort of the Renaissance, and then um, Judeo-Christian values heading kind of the Enlightenment from the 1800s onwards, and then you have the Empire. And uh, so, I, I think that especially people of, of um, the, the older you go up generate generationally, the more Christianity there is. Even if somebody will be a, a self-described atheist, that there are elements of Christianity to the way that people were brought up. It's like a cultural Christianity, yeah. The, the values that they hold, cultural Christianity, yeah. Um, and so I, I did find it quite interesting, quite, um, I, I can understand and empathize with a couple of uh, these lines. One of them I really liked from this episode was um, uh, Tennant saying, I, I would take their place in hell. Mm. And that's such a father thing to say. That's such a, I, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for anywhere, anywhere else, but that's such a British father thing to say. I can hear my dad saying that. I can hear anybody whose dad I know saying that, even if they're not Christian. It also kind of sounds like something 12 would say about Clara. I just get vague kind of 12 and Clara vibes from the whole self-sacrificial shit. Another interesting line from Jefferson was, all it takes to turn any human being into a hermit is a keen sense of smell. See, that part is kind of indulging, I guess, a kind of <laughs> the whole Sigma male <laughs> mindset about how, oh, oh, I, I don't, I, I'm superior because I don't socialize with, with you, with the scum of mankind. It, it, it was just, it was just amusing to just kind of indulge that mindset and in a seemingly completely uncritical way because you know, everything that comes out of Jefferson's mouth gets him to get treated as like, like higher sage wisdom. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a funny observation, but it's just kind of strange <laughs> in a weird way. While you were out partying, I was studying the blade kind of psychology. <laughs> Yes, it's very that. Did you guys think for a moment that Janice was was brain damaged? Yeah, and that it was a, a really disturbing yeah, and that and that it was going to be a really disturbing thing where either tenant's going to finish the job or you know she's she's a vegetable, something like that. Yeah, the moment she opened her eyes, I was like, oh god, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, and then and then she speaks, and then you know she ends up in Sandy Tucci's death row prison. So it, it just it yeah that that was um. I mean that that was my own fault. I I can recognise that it's it's my own um, expectations that were subverted uh, for better or for worse. But I I was quite disappointed by that. I disappointed myself because I thought there was there was going to be quite an interesting um, dramatic moment of is Tennant going to finish it or is is she going to live with you know the the scars of this moment for the rest of her life? I think well that's the scars for life. I thought it was interesting how quickly Tennant disengaged with Edgar. Like, is it your fault? I don't have time to think about that. And he just kind of marched on. Yeah, I found that quite curious, and I think that's that's that plays into the martyrdom thing, doesn't it? Because I don't think he was ever really interested in um, in in saving Edgar. He was just being interested. He was just interested in, in being the man to to carry the, the weight of Edgar's Edgar's problems on his shoulders. So Edgar killing himself was no problem to him. In the car, when he thumped Edgar in the chest, and was like, "You remember what I did for you? Uh, what I sacrificed for you every time you tempted." Yeah, the making himself Jesus Christ thing, yeah. Even when he's saying people say they're Christians, but you never see them nailed to anything. You can see it's it's like it's an affirmation of his religion, him punishing himself. Mm. Yeah. See, uh, see, unlike them, I am nailing myself to something, <laughs> just like Jesus. It's such a weird kind of dark comedy, or if you want to call it that, that Moffat's made this character who's basically saying, 
the only way I can be, you know, a true and proper Christian and, you know, successful vicar is to download a bunch of child porn. Like it's it's such it's such <laughs> like an absurd farcical premise that it's I think it's interesting the ways he sometimes is playing it straight, and then he's playing it kind of wryly, but he's not coming out and like pointing out the absurdity of what he's saying. I, th- I think that's another reason I was kind of disappointed by how insane Tenet went at the end. It's just because I thought the like I don't know if comedy is the right word. The kind of irony of what they're doing with that character and his predicament is. I think succeeded better when it was just more kind of a weird undercurrent. Yeah, it's very, it's a very juicy concept. The, the, yeah, like the, the, the serially like pathologically self-mastering vicar. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, you just you should go you should go you could go miles with that, and it sort of fizzles. It's everything people want to believe about vicars. This isn't to do with that character, but on like a um, seeing what is and isn't in the script, this might interest you to do with grief. An interview asks Moffat. Ah, uh, grief has remarkable resources for a guy on death row. He says he's a criminologist, but that feels like a fraction of the story. Who is he really in your mind? Moffat says, grief's begun treating the people in that prison more or less as his staff. I've got a version of what's going on there. I've only talked a tiny bit of it with Stanley, but he's a highly intelligent man. Combining that with the whole thing about how Moffat won't give any hints about what happened with Grief's wife, I feel like Moffat has written this whole law for Grief because he's so fascinated with Grief, <laughs> but he hasn't really, um, when it comes to the actual show, like the show part, that, that, that fascination is not translated into really exploring the character very much. It's all just this sort of like, oh, just, just building this, 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 this immense law behind this character, but not actually giving us a reason to, to hook into it. Tyler, do you think that the kind of sitcommy stuff with uh, Tennant and Mary and Edgar feels novel or like different to what Moffat's done before. Is that kind of stuff n- new territory for him? What he was kind of doing in the first episode before stuff went wrong? Uh, what specifically are you talking about? Like that if Harry, I mean, we uncover layers of him later on, but he's an ordin- he's an ordinary-ish guy, at least as presented in the first episode. Oh, the... The I'm a vicar stuff, like when it first started, and whereas Moffat usually writes characters like Jefferson, so writing a more normalish character and doing kind of a sitcommy stuff with a normal character rather than like a super intelligent Mark from joking apart or whatever. Well, no, it's 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 not, is it? Because he's but he's I mean he's he's done sitcom, hasn't he? Yeah, and and the the, the sitcom is is who's um. What's the, the, the oh it's, it's Steve isn't it it's, it's Stephen Steve is pretty normal yeah you're right Steve is a normal guy and Susan is is a normal woman and and most of those characters uh, the the only character I think that isn't normal is is the um I, uh, I can't remember is the character name or the actor's name Richard Coyle's character yeah yeah that yeah the only one that isn't normal is him yeah I've, I I don't know I've I've seen Stephen Moffat do kind of normal funny characters before and this is no this is nothing new. It's nothing exciting. I don't, I don't feel particularly excited by it. I was quite excited to see David Tennant do it in episode one. That was quite fun. I was excited to see David Tennant. Um, I think I mentioned I, I liked seeing David Tennant take on a, a Stephen Moffat script. That was quite enjoyable to watch. Um, he seemed to get the jokes and, and get the gist of what's going on really well um, in a way that uh, I think that Stanley Tucci and Lydia West struggled with uh, I think Dolly Wells gets it very well, the Moffatisms. Mm, I'm trying to think what else I have to say about that. No, yeah, this is not. I, I wasn't particularly excited to see Moffat do the normal people. It's, that's something that has has been done in his works. 
to an, uh, you know a decent enough degree. I dare say if there's any novel aspect to the to the, the drama stuff, maybe it's just the the pedophilia element, <laughs> and certainly because yeah. um you can't imagine. I mean, obviously, Moffat has written about kind of weird taboo shit before, but usually in a very jokey way. So I think I would say it's relatively new for Moffat to uh, just try and <laughs> fiddle with something incredibly sensitive like that, and maybe for good reason. Maybe because he's uh, generally maybe he hasn't trusted himself with particularly sensitive subjects in the past, and you know maybe there might be all sorts of reasons for that. Um, I, I think do you, one thing: do you think plausibly that his way of writing this could be compared more to RTD than some of Moffat's other stuff could be? Like, do you think there's any element of like proximity to RTDness in this? Yeah, because that's something I've seen raised. I uh, yeah, I think so. Not like tons. But I think at least what he's doing in the first episode, which is more like kind of playing happy families. And then, it, well, it's like um, in Years and Years, Stephen's like, dis- Stephen seems normal, you know, at the start of Years and Years. And when he does something truly terrible, you know, a bit over midway through the series, I think he still is normal in Years and Years. And that's kind of the horrifying thing about it is you, it's like this show, you can do truly horrible things for your family and that happens, you know, in real life. That's most people probably have some experience, you know, with that or they know someone in their family to have done something really grotesque in like defense of the family on some level. So, yeah, I think that's kind of RTD-esque because Moffat, I think, usually writes extraordinary people. Not always. Like Tyler said, his sitcoms kind of cut against that, you know, where we might have side characters who are really crazy but- there are normal characters in them, like Steve and Sue from Coupling. But I think the kind of happy family stuff and the what if normalish person was really did something truly bad, but was still kind of normalish through the badness is kind of in this show. But I think it's undercut because I think how cartoonish Tenet's character becomes, especially by the finale of this show, we're out of RTD territory by that point and we're in a weird. I I don't know what territory we're in there, but the that is insulting to me, isn't? Like yeah, that's that's somewhere new, I guess. I would maybe also say that perhaps the messiness of how Moffat approached writing this, as opposed to his usual um sort of artisanal <laughs> structure, maybe that's a bit more reminiscent of RTD as well. But RTD can often I'd say RTD is more capable of making it sing, whereas Moffat is so so like concerned with just accelerating and shit like in the finale of inside man where you have like multiple like um like you have harry about to finish off janice and something gets interrupted and he freaks out again and gets interrupted again and and just like a million like interruptions and like oh god ben's nearly killed janice now i have to insert myself as the murderer of janice for another reason and just how utterly just relentless it gets rtd doesn't act like that really so it's like like almost trying to weave an rtd path but ends up in a distinctly moffat direction location in a bad way i think the whole idea of what if story was about an everyman doing X or whatever, I, that, that don't really click with me because I think by virtue of any story, you're going to characterize your main character enough that they reach, you know, a level of specificity. By virtue of characterizing, you know, your main character, they're going to get specific enough that they're not really an everyman anymore. They're like a specific person and there's like an applicability there. But I does, does, it, does it make sense what I'm like saying there? Like- yeah. Tenet's character is characterized enough. He's not an everyman. Like you can apply, you can relate to him or do parallels with him, but he's become so specific. And that's a good thing because I think that's how you make a, you know, a specific detailed character. But I don't know. I, everyman pictures have never really clicked with me for that reason, unless it's like an action movie, you know, where Bruce Willis is a character so undercharacterized, <laughs> you can insert into him easy. Or like a love interest in a teen movie where they're so undercharacterized that 
they're in, they're in every man or every woman in the sense that there's so little there you can project anyone into them. But I think any show where someone gets super characterized, like even in years and years, you can like say that um, Stephen is like a normal family guy, but he's so specifically characterized that even though you can say, oh, this is just like so-and-so in my life or in their life, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm making sense, but I feel like they're their own person so much by that level of detail that every man starts to feel like a meaningless descriptor, maybe? I don't know. What do you think? It, it came to a point in, in Sherlock uh, where Moffat signed himself uh, the script to deal with the fact that John Watson wasn't really an everyman anymore. Wait a Neil hasn't watched Sherlock. Remember, remember, Neil hasn't watched Sherlock, just before you spoil anything. <laughs> yeah, I, so, so, I, so I, yeah, I, 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 won't, I won't go into detail, obviously, but there, there is... Um, there is, uh, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. Sorry, I completely barged in there. My John, no, 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 it's okay. No, you're right too. Um, John Watson, obviously, in it, in its in his conception in in uh, Bath Gun and Doyle, is the everyman character, isn't he? He's the uh, t- you know typical Londoner who meets Sherlock Holmes, and that and that's something that that BBC Sherlock has to deal with. But there comes a point, as there must in any um, uh, format, that that goes on for long enough uh, that you understand that and that there isn't such a thing as an everyman because you're writing fiction and you're writing fiction where this is heightened re- yeah, this is unreality um so this is that's something that Moffat has done before and he did it really quite exceptionally well i think um so for i, I don't really understand his his view that um as he seems to keep saying in, in interviews that harry isn't a narcissist and he isn't not normal. Yeah, I think fundamentally what you said there, like the the everyman that does not exist, there is no such thing. And I think <laughs> the, the the attempt to suggest that there is is the end of the day you're just flattening reality and real people's experiences. Uh, yeah, I guess there's commonalities. Like Moffat says, I think everybody is capable of murder. I mean, it'd be a lot to ask of 7.5 billion angry, rutting carnivores competing for survival and ready to kill if there isn't enough food. It would be remarkable. We built a great civilization. It's very, very clever in some parts of the world what we've done to constrain ourselves. But the fact that we built our justice system and the police force and all these laws, the fact that we built a cafe around ourselves doesn't mean we're automatically virtuous. So when he's talking of like commonalities of the human experience, like I get that. But yeah, the individuality of every person and every, you know, detailed character is such that the way he kind of presses this idea of anyone could be Harry, it's like, well... Yeah, but you've made like quite a detailed character here, and I think you're kind of reducing him to keep saying, "Oh, he's he's normal. He's not he's not that narcissistic." Well, no, he's an interesting narcissistic character. I would kind of cling to that because he's made quite an interesting character there. More than no, he's he's normal. He's normal. I think that quote from Moffat that you just said about um, how we've created uh, institutions and police and laws and such. I, I think like that's getting at a good point about the general conditions of a society which you know, creates murderers or whatever, or like uh, enables murder to happen, etc., etc., etc. But that doesn't really apply to the whole. Oh, everyone has something that they would kill for. Because I mean, it's just it, I just don't think it's true. And I, I just I I think like to, t- to take the kids thing as an example. Obviously, Moffat uses okay, I would kill someone for my kids. Okay, clearly that's that's the story. There's Absolutely, there are lots of people who would, but there are also parents who couldn't give off a shit about their kids. Yeah, you know, so like, do, do, so d- does that necessarily mean that they have something else that they would kill for? I don't necessarily think it does. So I think it's just a really, it's a really dodgy kind of thesis <laughs> to certainly want to um, anchor a whole show on. It's, it, could you be saying that Moffat's extrapolating out his personal experiences and thoughts to everyone, and then riding on that assumption? Yeah, quite possibly. But, uh, 
I agree with you, but isn't every writer uh, like obviously this is quite a philosophical idea, but that's just writing, isn't it? Yeah, you're just projecting your own view of the world and your own perceptions of reality, well, and what you see the world as. But there's there's a difference between like writing your sense of self or sense of something and writing as if everyone feels that way, which I think is like what Moffat's kind of toying with here is like everyone would do this because I feel like I would do this. Sure, yeah. Not that it makes for bad writing necessarily at all, but I just think there's a kind of extrapolation. And I think that's what's gotten him in trouble sometimes, less so now, but like you look at coupling and, you know, so much of it is, you know, just comedic and you could say purely comedic and it's not meant to be taken seriously. But then, you know, sometimes in interviews and stuff, he back then he was saying it seriously. So, it seemed these ideas of, you know, um, men are being reduced or, you know, all these certain gender ideas Moffat had. And that is a case of he's taking his thoughts and experiences and then he's saying and all men feel this way or you know all society works this way at least in britain which is like it's the extrapolation out i think he does it much less now but i think and i don't think it makes for bad writing necessarily but i think he with his pitch here it is that kind of compulsion to well i would do this so everyone would do this so it's an every man because everyone is me yeah that just general lack of factoring in perspectives that aren't like his own i think you can see that potential problem like all over his writing yeah I do like the concepts. Yeah, I like I like the concepts of the show. I, I like the the the, open, the the opening of this IP as a you know de- uh, death row inmate, super yeah, su- um, super de- super intelligent kind of uh, consulting detective like Sherlock Holmes type. Uh, I like that. I like the the Vickers stuff. I, I I do like the concepts of the show. I can see why it was something that Moffat spent his days dreaming up while working on another show. I just think it's such a shame to waste it as he has. And, you know, given that this is um, this is shaping up to be something that he returns to in the future, isn't it? I mean, whether, that, whether that's the far future or the near future, it's something that will be returned to. Um, I can only hope that there is something uh, more interesting to be done with it. And I, I, th- I think there is. I don't think it's something that's dead in the water. Um, I think the, the Tucci thing is interesting enough. The death row thing is interesting enough. Um I'm not so sure about Janice in the future, but I, I don't know. I I, I, ha- I have some level of hope that uh, a second season could could be more interesting because it's it's almost an anthology thing, isn't it? Where you don't need to do the same thing again and again and again. So they, you know, there could be something better around the corner, but um, I don't hold out too much hope for Inside Man. Yeah, I think Moff could give himself room to actually enrich the the certainly Jefferson <laughs> and just that the whole setting and an idea like much more than he has in these first in these chaotic uh, four episodes it's just a question of like will people care enough for it to actually get a renewal which you know i think is very up in the air well actually i i, I was wondering i was going to ask you guys whether you how you think the the general viewer will, will take this will have taken this i i don't know i think it's fairly palatable like it's a bbc yeah killer mystery show with david Tennant. yeah i was i was looking on twitter uh, uh, like late oh one of the latest tweets for inside man and a lot of them were disparaging some of them were you know this is a joke um the most critical ones actually came from doctor who fans it looked like <laughs> yeah as you'd expect i think as, as you would expect and um but generally what i was seeing from people that i would take as the normal viewer you know people that looked uh, looked, looked like they had professional twitter accounts kind of thing um, seem to like it. He seems to want more of it. I did see positive reviews. Yeah, 
Well, we'll see. I don't know. I just feel like the, fundamentally the fact that there's no murder <laughs> like at the end it might just be a stumbling block for some people. Something about the whole finale feels like just anticlimactic in that way. I just feel like it could go down as um one of those episodes that gets uh, dragged along with Dracula's finale. It's like, oh, Moffat can't write finale. Just one of those things. Oh, the, it was so good until the finale. It was so disappointing. I just feel like it could become one of those shows in the future, especially when it hits Netflix. I, I did finish this and I thought, how, how am I ever supposed to defend this? <laughs> because I've spent so long defending so many other things that Stephen Moffat has done. And I know that in the future, at, at some point, people are going to cite Inside Man to me. And I'm going to have to concede, yeah, this is really bad. And then I'm going to have to do the whole, but, but, but. Well, I hope his play that you're seeing in a few months is much more a success. I've only heard good things about that. Yeah. Um, between the really positive reception of the unfriend, the play, and I think uh, Time Traveller's Wife earlier this year, which me and Yobi both really enjoyed, thought was really good. And then in the same year, you have you know this show, which I think we've had mixed uh, reactions to. I think it serves to demonstrate Jefferson's maxim that no one is safe from the worst that they can do, least of all television writers. <laughs> well said. And that wraps up our discussion on Inside Man. Uh, everyone, please let us know what you thought of the show. I'd be very interested in other people's uh, reactions and thoughts on this show. Uh, your thoughts and our thoughts as well, bits you agreed with, disagreed with, other opinions. would love to read any and all perspectives. It's a very interesting show, and I'd be very interested in um, any and all other thoughts on it. So please share those with us, and thank you very much for listening. Cheers. <laughs>